Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy, my co-host, with me. Darcy, how you doing? Hello. I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm definitely looking forward to the upcoming week. We are flying out to California. Ooh. Nice. Should be a fun little vacay. Yeah. So what's going on with you? Anything new? Um, Still doing the Peloton workouts? Uh, yeah, I'm still, I haven't done mine today. I'm going to, when we finish this, after I eat dinner, um, I'm going to the Final Four. Ooh. I know, I'm really excited. What's your team? Um, so the team I will be supporting, because Auburn lost very early in the tournament, unfortunately, mm-hmm. so I will be supporting Villanova. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did you put any money on it? No, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> I already paid so much to just go that I I'm not even going to try and bet on it. You can? No. Nah. Yeah. I'm not a basketball fan. I am, and I'm very excited. So I, and I love New Orleans, so it's going to be a really good time. You got It'd a bunch be better of if Auburn going? was there, but whatever. Hmm? You got a bunch of friends going? Yeah, there's like eight of us. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So if you watch the game, <laughs> look, look for me. I'll be like way audience. up at like the very top in the nosebleed <laughs> section. Yeah, that'll be yeah, that'll be me. So I have a little bit of an article to talk about before we get into the main case for the day. And it says, have you gotten a wrong number text with a woman's selfie? Don't respond, experts say. Have you yes. seen this? I haven't seen the article, but I've gotten those texts and the ones that have links in them. Yeah. Weird, weird, weird stuff. But if you receive an unsolicited text message along with a photo of an unknown young woman, do not answer it, experts warn. In the latest text messaging scam, people through the United States have been receiving a text, likely from a number with the same area code as their own, and Mm -hmm. it seems to be from a rather friendly woman. She says, it's been a little while since you called, but do you want me yet? Others have received texts with similar phrasing, like, what's up, handsome? I've had so much enjoyment the other night. How do you feel about round two? Another reads. Ew. Many of the texts include a selfie of a red-haired woman, likely in her 20s and 30s, except that's not who's actually sending the text. No kidding, right? Yeah. I did a double take, says Pam Anston, the director of brand outreach for the Better Business Bureau serving Greater Cleveland. It's a different approach than most scammers take, and I don't think anything too seriously until more of my friends started to say that they had also received it. One theory circulated on social media says that it's a scam related to sex trafficking, which I can see, right? One viral post says that by responding, the person on the receiving end can track your location. Oh, God. Which is also horrifying. But that's not accurate, says Ron Pierce, president of IT company Trinity Solutions. It's a spam text message, he says. It's kind of one of those social myths. It gets circulated every now and then. This one has been going around since at least 2020 and maybe even a little before. Then it used to be just the whole sex trafficking angle, but now it's watch out, they could track you. It's a lie, they can't track you by responding to the text or clicking on anything like that. I just thought it was like a way to get your bank account info or something. But that's not to say answering the wrong number text isn't without some risks. However, by responding, you confirm to the scammer that your phone number is legitimate and they're able to get additional numbers. Once they have access Mm. to your phone, then they have access to your contact list. One victim makes it a good day for them. It may also be part of a romance scam, which have been on the rise lately. The Federal 
Trade Commission says people have lost more than $1.3 billion to romance scams in the past five years, including $547 million last year alone. Again, Tinder swindler episode. <laughs> Go yeah. check it out. And even the Bad Vegan episode, she met him over Twitter. So, Oh, is that the yeah, one you did with your yeah. mom? Oh, dang it. I was looking forward to hearing that story because I still haven't watched the thing. The scammers yeah, are deceitful and may try to con you out of your personal information or money, says the Better Business Bureau. They're charming. They say the right thing. They make you feel important. They give you what you want. All of the experts agree on one thing. Do not respond. Screenshot the text and reach out to your local law enforcement office, they suggest. Hmm. I mean, I don't know that I would take the time to... <laughs> Yeah, I just delete them. Like, I've only ever, most of them are just have like weird links, you know? But like, I've gotten one that had a picture in it, and that made me very uncomfortable and sad for the person whose picture yeah. it was, because they're not consenting to that picture being you used that way. Know it's but not I don't. Who they say it is. Oh, yeah. And also, but like, I don't know what Birmingham PD is going to do. Like, you know what I mean? They've got. There's other things going on that, like, I don't know how well funded their cybersecurity spam unit is. Right. You know what I mean? Um, I've personally gotten, I don't know that I would say a lot of these, but I think I get more of them via email where they have a picture of some attractive young woman and they say, you know, it's been a while. I've missed you. You ready to do this? Or, yeah. you know, I'm just looking for a great relationship. Respond back to me. And I can see where if you're just like a, a non-tech savvy, you know, lonely guy that you might be tempted to respond to something like that, right? I mean, I guess, but like, I don't know. I mean, of course, but I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah you're right, because of course it works. But like, yeah, just, your best bet is just delete it. Just Block the number, block the email address. You'll still get them because they are like masking their phone numbers, but like at least you've blocked that one. And I just wonder you know. who falls for that stuff anymore, especially the like the scams where they're like, we've you know somebody's turned over two million dollars to the embassy, and you're the recipient of it. So just send us five hundred dollars, and or just pay for the delivery fee, and we'll give yeah. you the money. Like who falls for that? I, I don't I mean I don't know. I'm tempted to like respond back to the email and be like, does anybody actually fall for this? Please respond back. But don't because that means they can get into no, your. No, then I was afraid that they would like hack me or do something crazy, yeah. and so I never yeah. did. But I just delete it. But at the same time, I'm like, best to just does delete. This even still work, and I probably get at I least a half, and a half a dozen of those every week. I get that, and then I get, like, things that'll be, like, AT&T, your bill has been paid, click on this link to verify, and it's, or like, that's not... your account's been frozen, click on the link to re right, yeah. and confirm your identity or something like that. Right. Just a PSA, yeah. folks, if you haven't heard already, never, never click, on that. click on those, and never respond back to the ones from the IRS, either. They're not going to send you an email. No, the IRS doesn't text you. And they're not going to text you, just FYI. Yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead and jump into the main case for the day. We're going to talk. Watch like next week the IRS is going to be like, look at our new feature. We're texting. <laughs> as soon as we say that, that's, that's always going to be the case, right? Yeah. This week we're going to talk about Eric Smith. So you know who that is? Okay. Not off you the top of my head. 
I did. I thought it was a football it player. It could be a football player, but this particular yeah, it's a yeah, really this common particular name. Particular person that I'm talking about is not a football player. He okay. was born January twenty second, nineteen eighty, and grew okay. up in Steuben County, New York, which is kind of upstate New York in a really small kind of little community. Um. I don't know anything about New York. I've never been to New York City, so I assume that hours. everything that isn't New York City yeah, is it's upstate. It's about four and a half, four hours from New York City. And it's really kind okay. of closer to... Like north yeah, toward Canada really or like toward... It's to the Canada okay. side than to the New York okay. City side, but in any case, okay. it's kind of a small town where there's only like, you know, like a thousand people in this little town. Everybody knows everyone mm, okay. else. So yeah. Smith is kind of an interesting kid. Right. He's got this red hair and these kind of strange kind of looks, thick glasses, gets teased a lot. From all accounts, okay. he was initially a very loving and kind of uh, sweet boy. His grandparents, Red and Edie Wilson, said that he would always kind of give them hugs and kisses. He kind of was a little bit of a clown. But I think about the time he got to be 10, 11, 12 years old, he was diagnosed by a defense psychiatrist with intermittent explosive disorder. Have you heard of that? I haven't. Evidently, it's a mental disorder that causes people to be violent and unpredictable. So evidently, the prosecution expert said this is a very rare disorder, and it's not usually seen in people this young. Right. Yeah, like, you always have to be really careful. Like, I think there's a lot of those um, behavior personality disorders that, like, you can't officially diagnose somebody until they're 18, but, like, that you could say, like, a child has yeah. traits of this or and whatever. And I think there was some talk that he had temper tantrums, he hit his head on the floor, he had speech problems, he was held back in school, and they said he was also relentlessly bullied. Which, you know, again... Interesting. Okay, so... But, that, but they're not saying there's anything like autism spectrum disorder related. At that time, related. that wasn't really a diagnosis. This was like, he was born uh, in the 80s, right? Like, they're not diagnosing that kind of stuff yeah. in the early 80s. Yeah, uh, you Well, are. at least they did not for him. Um, okay. He was a loner, and he was often tormented by bullies for his low-set ears, thick glasses, red hair, and freckles, which kids at that age are just the worst. Yeah. They're so they're mean. So, they're mean. All you want is to fit in, and or all you want, not necessarily to fit in, but all you want is to yeah, not stand exactly. out. And he clearly like, stood out. Yeah. So it's August 2nd, 1993, and Smith is 13 years old at this time. And he was known at the time to ride his bike around town alone, and just, he was always mm -hmm. by himself. He didn't really have friends. He was a loner. He definitely was very mm -hmm. awkward, and... In order to kind of avoid being picked on and bullied, he just kept his own company, which I get it. Sure. But um, he went to summer camp in a local park. It was a day camp. And that particular day, he was told to leave because he was acting up. Because, again, he had that kind okay. of anger disorder where he would very easily lose his temper. It, there's some reports that he hurt animals cats and whatnot mm. um, was violent with animals and killed them and things of that nature which we all know is one of the trademark hallmark signs of serial killers as youngsters when they mm -hmm. kind of transition from killing animals to killing people but on this particular day in August he got told to leave because he was acting up mm -hmm. Derek Robbie was a four year old 
he had a younger sibling and he was attending the same camp as Eric Smith. Okay, so this was like a wide range of, of ages. Yes, it was a day camp okay. and they probably had, you know, very young children all the way up to like 15, 16 years old. Okay. The parents would kind of send their kids there to keep them busy during the day. Yeah. And I guess on that particular day, Derek's little sibling was kind of crying a lot or acting up or whatnot. And his mom did not normally let him go to this camp alone. But on that particular uh-huh. day, she said, go ahead. It wasn't very far. He didn't have to cross any streets. I guess it was like a block or two from their house okay. at the end of a dead end street. Okay. And Smith is on his bike after being kicked out of this summer camp. And he sees Robbie. He lures him into a nearby wooded area, strangles him, drops a large rock on his head, and sodomizes him with a stick. Oh my gosh. According to the people that did the um, autopsy, Derek died of blunt trauma to the head with contributing Mm. asphyxia. So around 11 a.m., Derek's mother kind of has this weird sort of a feeling and rushes to the park to pick her son up only to find out that he never showed up. Derek's mother or Eric's mother? Derek's mother. mother. Derek's mother, okay. Derek is the little boy, the four-year-old boy. The other little boy, Eric Smith, because he is a little boy. He's 13, but if you see pictures of him, he looks like eight. Like, he does not look like a teenager. He looks very, very young and very immature. And then... So Robbie's mother is looking for him at the park and never sees him. After four hours of investigation, they find Robbie's body. Okay. I'm going to kind of take a step back here for a moment and talk about like what happened during this time. Because I found this really cool article that kind of talks about it in a little bit more detail and just sort of covers off on so many critical factors in this case. It came out with CBS News, um, and it was actually part of an interview that was done by, I believe, Dan Rather when this whole thing came out initially. Okay. 48 Hours has been covering this case since Eric Smith, 13, was charged with the killing of four-year-old Derek Robbie. He was tried as an adult and convicted of second-degree murder for this. Since the sentence for Smith was nine years to life, but it would be a life sentence for the Robbies once Smith became eligible Mm. for parole in 2002. So essentially, Eric Smith's, during Eric Smith's 11th appearance before the parole board, he was granted parole. And this was in October, 2021. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. But he didn't actually get freed until February, 2022. Right. But there's a lot of people who say that this is a really huge gamble. For the following reasons. After being locked up for 28 years, Eric Smith, who murdered a child as a teen, is now free. He's out on parole in Queens, New York. He insists that he's a changed man deserving his freedom and that he has a plan for a fresh start. He even has a fiance. So he wants to kind of live the American dream, get married, have kids, do the whole thing. He's in his 40s now. Mm-hmm. But the family of this poor little boy is just shocked, devastated, terrified that this man is gone. 
So in the summer of 1990, that this man is out now, but in the summer of 1993, Derek Robbie and his family lived just down the street from this park where he, his body was found in the little town of Savona, New York. Robbie loved T-ball. His dad was a coach, and T-ball was his son's favorite game. And so he would always be ready to play that T-ball whenever he got a chance, and he hit a lot of home runs and got a lot of attention from that. He was kind of called the unofficial mayor of this Savona, this very small town. So <laughs> both Smith and Robbie attended this recreation program at a local park, and Doreen Robbie, who was Derek Robbie's mother, always watched as he made the short trip. But on that particular morning, mm-hmm. the, his baby brother was crying, and she just was like, okay, go ahead. I, it, you'll be safe. It's, you know, mm-hmm. There's other kids on the street, and he knew the route, and so she let him walk by himself. So she packed his lunch and let him go. He, he gave her a kiss and said, I love yeah. you, Mom. It's only a block. What, kind of, what could happen, right? There's no streets for him to cross, and it's at the end of a dead-end street. Yeah. A short time later, storm clouds moved in, and Doreen felt something close to panic. She just had an awful feeling, and it began to pour. So she said she thinks that's the moment when he died. So she immediately races to the park and finds out that her son never arrived. Five hours later, searchers found Derek's body in a small patch of woods just a few yards from the park and a few hundred yards from his own door. Isn't that horrifying? Like, he's so close. Oh, my gosh. He had been choked and beaten to death with Uh. rocks. Neighbors placed a cross at the scene. So, essentially, they're devastated at that point. The streets of Savona were empty as worried parents kept their children inside, and the immediate assumption was that the killer was a stranger from out of town. And even Eric Smith and his family believed that. He was kind of pretending like he had nothing to do with this, right? Um, Eric Smith grew up just across town and liked to spend time with his grandparents, Red and Edie Wilson. He was a big, you know, kind of an affectionate little little kid. He had bright red hair and freckles, and this kind of made him a target for bullies. No one Mm -hmm. knows why Eric Smith did what he did. He said, quote-unquote, I don't know. I just saw this kid, this blonde kid, and I wanted to hurt him. This was August 2nd, 1993. They found Derek Robbie's body in a small patch of woods midway between the park where he was headed and his home. So he'd been kind of snatched halfway there. Charles Wood was the lead investigator, and the evidence showed that Derek was lured from the sidewalk and strangled. The killer's identity was then still unknown. Investigator Charles Wood said that he discovered that... Eric discovered and dug up one very large rock and one smaller rock and battered Derek with these rocks. He then went into Derek's lunch bag and Mm. smashed a banana and took his Kool-Aid and actually poured that red Kool-Aid into the wounds that had been made by the large rocks before sodomizing this poor little boy with a stick that he found. He then arranged Derek's body removing the left sneaker and putting it next to his right hand and his right sneaker next to the left hand. It was almost like the body had been posed in that position. Eric Mm. continued to deal with Derek's body because he wanted to, chose to, and most frighteningly because he enjoyed it. Four days after he did all this, he walks into the police station and says, I want to help find, I want to help find the killer. A 13 year old. Yeah. And they said he they could see that he was totally enjoying it and didn't want it to end. He liked the attention and they had no idea that this was a killer sitting right in front of him. He's a 13-year-old right. kid who looks like 
hunched over a little bit and he's very, very upbeat, very happy. He likes the fact that he's being talked to. Initially, he denies knowing Derek Robbie, but then he changes his story. So then they asked him what this little boy was wearing and he went on to describe the lunch bag, the outfit of this little boy, and they knew at that point that this he's got more to do with it than he's saying. He then starts yeah. to get emotional. His voice starts cracking. He puts his head down and brings his fists up. He's kind of vibrating a little bit. And then he mm-hmm. says, quote, you think I killed him, don't you? So, like, at that point, I don't necessarily think they had any evidence or proof against this Eric Smith. But, like, when you right. make a statement like that, like, that's clearly, like, a cry for help. So right. he asks them to take a break, and his father brings him a glass of Kool-Aid. So his dad was yeah, with his him. his parents were there. Yeah. Okay. His dad okay. brings him some Kool-Aid, and I guess he just gets super traumatized. And we kind of note that when Eric had killed this young boy, he spilled red Kool-Aid all over him. So, like, I think he's kind of yeah. triggered by seeing this Kool-Aid and, and is like, here's this traumatic event, and now, you know, I can't get around it. Okay. The next day, investigators ask this young boy to get on his bike and show him where he saw Derek Robbie. And immediately Uh this kid is like, oh, they're giving me attention. And he gets on his bike and rides out and shows them. He was having a good time, they said. It quickly became obvious that Eric could not have seen all he had described from the distance he claimed to be. And there was a discrepancy in his story. So his parents and grandparents know he's hiding something at that point. Mm -hmm. they, They knew that he had done something bad. And five days after he was killed, Derek Robbie was buried in his baseball uniform. And basically, family members sat Eric down and said, you know, we know you did something bad. You have to tell us the truth. And he says, I'm sorry, Mom. I'm sorry. I killed that little boy. And everyone is just, like, absolutely shocked. So then we go to the, the trial itself. And the whole town, like, gets involved with this. But the trial starts in August 1994. So, like, a year later. Okay. Um, in the state of New York, murder is the one crime that a 13-year-old can be tried as an adult in court. And so, basically, mm. Eric Smith was tried an, as an adult. But everybody wants to know why Eric did this and why he did something so horrible and heinous. But th- the defense claimed that it was because he suffered from a very serious mental disease um, in order for him to pick this rock up and put it down on this little boy's head, it suggests that there had to have been something very, very wrong with him. Both of Derek's parents also gave testimony. They wanted to try to personalize the tragedy, but the um, defense attorney kind of shut that down and wouldn't really let them say much about Derek. But I think that there was enough evidence where they didn't really need to personalize it to be able to prosecute this. Um, The jury heard that as a toddler, Eric threw temper tantrums and banged his head on the floor. He had speech problems and was held back in school and relentlessly bullied. He would say things like, I'm stupid, I'm nobody, I'm you know, I'm never going to be anyone, and that kind of stuff. I remember him coming to me in the kitchen. He was very Mm -hmm. upset. He was crunching his fists and shaking and told me, he said, Dad, I need help. I feel like I want to hurt someone. And he said, yes, I do. I want to hurt something. So clearly this little boy is crying out Mm. for help. He's saying, I have this problem. I really need help. And he's not getting it. Um, According to the defense psychiatrist, they diagnosed Eric with intermittent explosive disorder, uncontrollable rage. People who have this disorder describe feeling as though they're about to explode. After the episodic rage, the child may appear to be, quote, Mm. normal. 
But an expert for the prosecution disagreed with this diagnosis, saying it's extremely rare and it's usually not seen in someone Eric's age. Specialists from both sides right. subjected Eric to extensive medical testing, examined brain function, hormone levels, and found nothing to explain his violent behavior. Because of the sexual nature of the crime, there was questions as to whether Eric was abused as a child. But mm-hmm. there's nothing to, to kind of indicate that he was. He had had a sister that was sexually abused by their stepfather, um, but there was nothing that anyone had sexually abused Eric. There was no evidence of that. So at the end of all this, he was sentenced to the maximum, nine years to life in prison. Because he was 13 years old, they can't lock him up and throw away the key because constitutionally, mm-hmm. that's, they can't do that. So evidently, the family was relieved that he was put away, but then they're hearing this nine years to life and knowing that he can start eligibility for parole almost immediately. Eric Smith's first right. parole hearing was in 2002. So that's... That's really quick. He's convicted in 1994, and yeah. eight years later, he's up for parole. He's obviously declined yeah. at that time, but the family was really upset because they're not allowed inside the closed-door hearings, so they wrote letters and made home videos to remind the board about their loss. In 2004, Smith was 24 years old, and he read a statement for 48 hours on camera saying, Hi, my name is Eric Smith. You first met me 11 years ago. I know my actions have caused terrible loss in the Rob- to the Robbie family, and for that I'm truly sorry. Uh, I think the family was really troubled by all of this, knowing that he could essentially get out and live a normal life because they thought he was just basically yeah. going to do it again. Sure. So they basically ask him at these parole hearings and say... When you were doing that, was that something that gave you a good feeling? And Eric Smith said, at the moment it did, Mm -hmm. yes. So he got pleasure from murdering this young child. Because instead of me being hurt, I was hurting someone else. Growing up, I was always picked on, disrespected, made fun of. John Tunney says Eric was tired of being the victim in his mind, and he wanted to see what it felt like to be the victimizer. Mr. Smith, if you had not admitted to someone that you had done this, do you think it would have been a fair statement to say you probably would have done it again? And his answer was yes. And they believed that at the age of 13, he was a budding serial killer. Whoa. And they say he very well may have done again because it was such a positive experience for him, which is just absolutely horrifying. Whoa. So Eric Smith in 2009 got his fifth parole hearing and was also denied at that time. He was interviewed at the time and says, the only thing I can say to them is that I'm not the same person. There's not a day that goes by in some way, shape, or form that I am like forced, that I'm not forced to remember what I did. I'm automatically thinking I killed Derek and the pain that I caused Dale and Doreen Robbie. Which, you know, he should be. But he says, I'm different, I'm self-aware, and I have every reason in the world to behave. I did kill Derek, and for that you know I'm sorry. And there's nothing I can do to bring him back. I mean, if I could switch places with him and take the grave and take the grave for him to live, I'd do it in a second. Mm-hmm. Through the years, more compassion has started to arise for this young boy, looking at his history and how much he'd been bullied and looking at some of the stuff that we know now. I think people started to sympathize with him a little bit. But on October 5th, 2021, 41-year-old Eric Smith went before the parole board for the 11th time and was granted parole. Weeks before Eric Smith was granted parole, dozens gathered in Savona to peacefully protest his release. They said, we're here as a community to stand together for justice for Derek Robbie and for Dale and Doreen Robbie.
They wanted to remember Derek because of yeah. all the attention was now on Eric being released. They didn't want people to forget. Back in Savona, many feared Smith wanted to move back to live with his mother, who still lives in this town. Um, Doreen Robbie said, I wasn't so much worried about us as I was for everyone else. There were just a lot of people. Yeah. The parole board agreed Smith's release was delayed for months until approved housing was found for him in Queens, New mm. York, over 200 miles away from Savona. Then, on February 1st, 2022, after being locked up for 28 years, Eric Smith quietly slipped out of Woodbourne Correctional Facility out of view of cameras, a free man. The Robbies say they choose not to think about Eric Smith, but instead focus on friends and family, especially their son Dalton, who is now 30, who mm. is Derek's little brother. They also have a little statue for him in memorial in this town. Um, Eric Smith went on to say that he had big plans for his future, but this was when he was interviewed in 2009. He said he wanted to get married, raise a family, and hold down a job, pursue the American dream. He also said he wanted to counsel kids who had been bullied, just like he had been. The question is, will Eric Smith be a success story or somebody we're pointing to and saying the system blew it with that one? So I think only time is going to tell, right? Right. And again, there's a statue of the unofficial mayor of Savona, Derek Robbie, that overlooks the ball field named in honor of Derek Robbie. Mm. It's a sad kind of a story. I mean, I could understand the whole aspect of, you know, having this anger and this sort of rage at being bullied. And I think it kind of harkens back to the episode that we did about Vester Flanagan. He felt like he had been kind of picked and picked and picked at all those years until it just kind of blew up. I think... I think that that's not like, this is not a unique story. I think everybody in their childhood feels left out, feels picked on, feels different, but it's the way that certain people handle it and respond to that. Well, what I thought was interesting is that he'd gone to his parents and said, I feel like I want to hurt somebody. Yeah. Why did he not get counseling? Why did they not act on that? is the question and, and maybe he did and maybe it's right. just not conveyed in the yeah I don't know in the you know the story or whatever but it's very concerning to me that this little boy was experiencing so many so much trouble and didn't get help and they, they weren't able to get right. help for him until he did something like this and you know young children and teens don't really have impulse control we've discussed this on yeah. multiple occasions but to find a little boy and to so clearly and succinctly express that you wanted to be the bully for once and you wanted to make somebody else feel pain because you'd always been feeling pain is just terrifying. Right. Because on the one hand, he looks like this very small child, but on the other, he's expressing these very adult-like emotions. Yeah, I mean, this is tough because we can sit here and say, like, we think that... that you shouldn't put kids away for the rest of their lives and then on you know turn around and say but you know there's no reason to think this kid won't do it again so like you can't have it both ways I would love to do you think he could be rehabilitated yes I would love to think that we have a rehabilitation program in our prison system we do not so I think that there are resources that he should have and that everybody should have access to that could help. I don't think necessarily that anybody is predisposed to violence. And I do think he should be given the opportunity to grow because of how young he was, um, grow and show remorse and be able to move forward. But I don't think that, that that has to come at the cost of A, forgetting what he did, B, forgiving what he did and C, 
see it being completely, you know, dissociated from the idea that this could happen again. I think that there's that all of these things can exist together, and I think that there's a way to do that. I don't think that our system is currently set up to do that. Well, I think unlike other offenders, like adult offenders, I think because of his young age when he offended, that he was offered some services that probably regular offenders Hopefully. would get. I mean... First of all. And then second of all, because of the possibility of his future release, I think that they really focused energy on helping him get rehabilitated rather than an adult who's going through the same situation. And then thirdly, he is on parole for the rest of his life. It's not like he's ever going to be necessarily free of that. He's going to have to check in regularly. He's going to not be able to to move out of state. There's going to be a lot of restrictions placed upon his freedom. Well... And that is to, to assume that the parole system works also without flaw, which is we know is not the case. You know <laughs> what I mean? So, not. like, I think that, yes, in an ideal world, he would have access to those resources due to his age and, the, and the, the, the nature of what he did and his diagnoses. And B, yes, he would be on parole for the rest of his life. And so there's always going to be a, that check on him. I don't necessarily – that's the ideal. I don't necessarily think that either of those are true. You know yeah. what I mean? Unfortunately. He's a tiny guy. He's like 5'3". Yeah. Like, he's not a big guy. Yeah. So you got to imagine when he was in prison, he took a lot, probably. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. This, it's just, this is then, just one of those. I think there's just some stories out there that are just tragic from beginning to end, and this is one of them, and I just don't... I don't know what else to say about it. Like, I'm kind of left speechless. Like, yes, I hope that, that there is a future for him... Yes, I understand their the parents' pain and resentment. I just I just don't know. You know what I mean? Like I don't know the answer. I I think. But I think you have to take it even one step back further, in talk about our mental health system in this country, right. and just how absolutely uh, how much of a dismal failure it is, and as well like how we deal with right. bullies, how we deal with teaching our children to treat other children need to be things that are addressed on a wide scale sort of a way in this country. Because I know you said, you know, this is the experience of so many people, but it shouldn't be. Why do we have to say, well, I was treated this way when I was a kid. It's totally normal. They should just deal with it. It shouldn't be that I want to make sure that I'm pointing out that I think this is the perceived experience of everybody. I don't know that this is the lived experience for everybody. I think everybody goes through a moment where they feel picked on and bullied but I think that there's a difference between that and we've, I was not actually bullied. I was actually bullied. And I think that there are very, very real instances. Yeah. And it's becoming more, it's coming more and more to light now because you've got very small kids committing suicide because right. they've been bullied, picked But that's on, what I'm saying is up, there's a, there is out. a difference between, because I was not actually bullied, but I, I had, I was, I was horribly depressed as a child. I felt left out. I felt different. I had a perceived notion of being picked on that that wasn't my actual lived experience because I could look at that at school and see other people that did have that lived experience. So I'm saying like, I think I'm not saying bullying happens to everybody. I'm saying everybody has, goes through a moment where they feel different and left out and picked on. But I think in this instance, there was very clear indications and evidence that this, this kid was actually really picked on. Yes. And I do think that he, I do think that he was, I'm just saying, I think it's, it's all, I think it's the, it's not all, I shouldn't use such an encompassing word. It's the response to that is so important. Yeah. Yeah. 
because everybody and I think will that feel that's where that, we have but how you learn. respond to it is, is different. That's where we have room to learn, and I think that's where our educational system, our mental health system needs to really step up and provide better care for people like this young boy who clearly was going through a lot of issues yeah. at a very young age yeah. and who really didn't have any of those issues addressed. And I think there is something to be said for the fact that he was able to identify it. The fact that he didn't get help is a big issue, but the fact, but he was able to identify it and go to the person that he thought he needed to go to, his parents, and say, I'm having these rage issues, like, you know, however you articulated it, but he but identified it. How do you deal it. with something like that as a parent? I mean, it's just, it's, I don't think we understand as a society how to interact. We don't understand what we need to do. Yeah. We don't teach our parents how to do, I mean... There are a lot of parenting skills and parenting classes that I think, you know, need to be a part of our regular curriculums for parents, yeah. too, rather than just kids. Sure. It's hard to be a parent. It's I'm not a parent. I'll t you know, I'm, I'll, I'll be the first to disclose that information. I don't have any kids, yeah. so I can't necessarily say I'm an expert on that. But from what I can see, it is that's one of the hardest jobs you can have in this oh, world yeah. is to be a parent. Yeah. And there's just not enough tools. There's not enough support. And there's not enough people out there that are willing to come up underneath these parents who are struggling and help them. That We need that help. We need that support. We need to be able to help those parents yeah. make decisions that are going to assist their children in being better adults, better yeah. people, better children, being sympathetic, being you know strong, and being able to cope with a lot of these issues. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think this is, un this is just one of those terrible systemic tragedies just all, all around. All the way around. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I definitely hope that since then we have come up with a better plan to handle things like this, although I'm not going to hold my breath. Yeah, right? I wouldn't get your hopes up on that. But, I mean, it seems like there's quite a few cases starting in the 90s with young children who've mm -hmm. Vi very to who've uh, committed very violent crimes, and it's kind of a terrifying thing that's always sort of fascinated me. Yeah, that a child would have the capacity to kill. Yeah, I think that's why they become such well-known stories, as because it is so shocking. That's not typical behavior, and so like it stands out when when you hear about it. It makes yeah. big headline news. Not well, necessarily that it is more pervasive. It's just that we just hear about it more. Oh, yeah. But I think that there's always this presumption that children are innocent mm -hmm. and that they're corrupted by society and by their environment. And it's really hard for people to believe that as an innocent child, you committed a crime that's that heinous. Yeah. What created that? And, you know, I just don't know that people believe that enough happened to this young boy as a small child that would create such a monstrous rage within him. And they have a hard time dealing with that. Yeah, I, I mean, the, it, this is one of those things I don't know that we'll ever, like, get the answer to because it deals with behavioral disorder. Like, right. it's something, like, it's so far above my understanding of psychology and stuff. And both my parents, by the way, work in mental health. So, like, I think I have a above-average understanding of mental health and behavioral disorders. But, like, right. this is so far above, like, I couldn't even, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Yeah. But, I mean, gosh, this this poor, you know, little boy who was murdered, his yeah. poor family, and just... Yeah. They're still in that town. They're still there in that same house. I mean, can you imagine moving on and picking up your life after mm -hmm. suffering from something like that? Mm -hmm. And then finding out that this person that did this is now free. Yeah. 
That's got to be extremely And having hard. to relive that experience every, like, whatever, three, four years that he was getting parole hearings up until Absolutely. that point, too, you know? So, anyway, um, very, very sad case. Very, uh, and we'll keep you guys posted as as this continues to unfold, but it's my understanding that he's kind of disappeared from the public eye, right. which, you know, can you blame him? No. I probably would do the same thing, but I guess he did have a, a, a fiance and that he met when he was in prison and they're, you know, plan, had plans to get together on the outside. So yeah. I do hope that he's able to kind of put his life back together and become a productive member of society. Right. Maybe he can beat the odds. Yeah. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. Darcy, social media? Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on Instagram. So we'll, we'll throw some pictures about the case and um, all that stuff up there, too. Absolutely. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.